Welcome to Main Street Politics. My name is Daniel Bonham. Uh, we're joined here today. We've got a special guest today. We've we've kind of done over the last year, year and a half that we've been doing this podcast, a introduction to the cast of characters in the building. And we've had representatives, we've had the chief clerk, we've had the secretary of state, and we've had mostly elected officials. For the first time ever, I, I think we, we wanted to pivot and give a perspective of someone that has come to the Capitol to conduct business on behalf of themselves as a member of the general public, a working Oregonian uh, with a family, uh, family farm that uh, was here to advocate on behalf of their own business and on behalf of their family and their way of life. And so today, our special guest is Brenda Furkatich, who has a wonderful, wonderful blog, uh, Nutty Grass. Mm -hmm. Check it out, nuttygrass.com. Mm -hmm. Is that where it's at? Yeah, that's okay. right. And so, so Brenda came this session specifically to talk about chlorpyrifos. Did I say that right? You did say it right, yeah. I've been practicing all night. <laughs> Good job. So, um, <laughs> So you came to the Capitol to talk about House Bill 4109 and uh, kind of walk us through that story, if you would. Yeah, so um, I definitely consider it a part of my job as a third generation farmer to stand up for what we have here in Oregon, which is a really thriving agricultural industry. Um, for myself, like I said, I'm third generation. And like you said, I'm raising the fourth generation on our farm. We've got three small kids. So the legacy here is really important to us. And so part of that job for me is showing up to testify against things that are going to threaten that way of life, because there's a lot that folks don't understand as they become more removed from the farm. And so I think in this building in particular, um, it's important that we show up and, and speak to our representatives to tell them our side of the story, because it's one that um, not, like I said, not everyone understands. So Clopyrifos, um is a tool that we use on our farm, and um, it's really important especially to our specialty seed industry, which is um, we grow a number of different crops on our farm, anywhere from 10 to 12 every year, but grass seed, uh, vegetable seeds, some vegetables, uh, hazelnuts as well, or filberts if you're from Oregon. <laughs> and uh, so with those number of crops, we use a number of different tools and clopyrifos is one that's really important to us. And so we saw this as an important way to come and share our story about why that tool is important. So here I am sitting at home. I'm a I'm a you know, small business owner myself, mm -hmm. and I hear the word chlorpyrifos. It means nothing to me. Yes. Right. <laughs> so what is specifically what is chlorpyrifos? So chlorpyrifos is an insecticide. It's a broad spectrum insecticide, which means that we can use it to control a lot of different pests that come into our field. Um, one of the advantages is it controls below soil pests as well as above soil pests. So it has a really specific use in that manner um, that we can use it, for instance, at planting to help with rootworm. We can use it um, to help with armyworms when they attack our fields. It also, um, it's a very trusted insecticide in the sense that there are so many studies behind it. It's been around since the 60s. And, um, and so we've, we've really come to use this tool um, sometimes as a last resort. So for instance, on grass seed, we've looked at a lot of different other insecticides and we've used them, we've done those trials on our farm. Um, and sometimes if the weather's too hot or if um, one of the situations was the, um, the pests weren't eating enough of the grass, mm. that the other insecticide, the safer one was on. And so they weren't dying. They were just like slowing down and then they slowed down and they ate less. And so we were watching our fields still disappear in an overnight situation. And so we had to go out and then apply um, the clopyrifos over top of the other one that we sprayed, which is 
not against the label, but it was frustrating to have to use two insecticides when one would have just done the job. And so we're coming up against this gap in um, legislation, not legislation, excuse me, in regulation, where mm. we don't have tools coming up behind clopyrifos yet. And so we need to fill that time period with more research, with more funding, with more folks um, who are doing that work. And they are, it just takes a really long time to find something that will fill that gap in a safer manner. So one of the challenges I find, you know, I'm, I'm two years into this job now, so I'm a savvy veteran of, of the legislative process, but I don't know everything about everything, right? So yes. I trust that when people come to me and they start to tell me a story about, uh, specifically in this in instance, insecticides, that they know what they're talking about. And they come into this office and they sit and they advocate and they tell me that uh, they're all our alternatives. And so... I hear them and I say, okay, does the alternative work as effectively as it is safe? Is it, what is the best way of attacking this problem? And, and I, in the last two years, so far in conversations I've personally had about insecticides, there have been no better alternative. And in fact, the alternatives have been worse for the environment, for the soil, for the end product. And so this, this situation that you found yourself in as I read your blog and part of the reason why we invited you in here is, is you went through kind of a, a little bit of a, a trial here uh, <laughs> with this particular bill. And uh, you came in, you engaged, you testified before the committee. And in that committee, you were told about a letter. Can yeah. you walk us through a little bit about the, the story of the letter? The letter, yes. So, um, yeah, I came in to testify about House Bill 4109, and there was a lot of farmers there. I think we were two to one um, showing up to testify to not ban this insecticide. And every time we got up, um, we all spoke to the fact that there were no alternatives, no viable alternatives, which for a farmer means um, mode of action. Um, it means application method. It means pests. It means a lot of different things. It doesn't just mean it's on the label, so it kills it. Um, there's a lot more that goes into to that application than I think a lot of folks realize. So we wanted to <clears throat> tell them, you know, there there truly are no alternatives. We had people from everywhere from, um, you know, farmers to folks who uh, uh, rely on those insecticides as far as seed treatments came to testify. There was a wide range of agricultural industry there represented. And on our plan, I was on the first panel and Senator Przanski asked about this letter. Um, I hadn't seen the letter at this point and he seemed to have it sitting right in front of him and he said, well, this letter it's signed by, it says here 47 PhDs and um, folks with masters and they're all from Oregon and they're all saying that there's 98 alternatives for grass pests, grass turf and lawn pests. And so what, you know, kind of what's your response to that? And so we're on this one side of saying, there's essentially zero, and he's on this side saying there's 98, which is a huge number of right. insecticides. Right. Absolutely. And so for us, it was like such a gap, and how is that possible? And it made us all feel very um, frustrated because we knew it wasn't true, but he continually brought it up. Every single time someone said something, it was just brought up again and again and again. And then finally, um, during the second public hearing, I was actually home with my kids. I was watching the hearing on my phone, and when he voted, he said that that was a huge part of the reason was that letter with those 98 alternatives. And so I just thought, I got to get my hands on this list. Like, I need to see what this list looks like. Um, and so I started down, like I called a rabbit hole, and it was. Um, I started down this rabbit hole of 
you know, calling the senator's office. I called um, the registered lobbyist who actually put forth the testimony. Um, and there was just no one knew. I mean, it just, I kept coming up against these dead ends of, well, I don't know who wrote the letter, but I agree with it. Or, you know, and no one would claim to have written it. And it took me, I mean, days and days and days to get essentially nowhere. So let me ask you this, because I know for me and my business, I uh, engage with my industry, right? Uh, we have a trade show or two or three a year that I go to and I attend and I get the up-to-date information. Like, is that the case for you as a farmer? I mean, are, are grass seed farmers engaged in a way that you all know what technology is out there, what best practice is? Like, how, how do you engage in that process? How do you stay informed? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we have a lot of trade shows with meetings. Um, just to be able to spray this specific insecticide, you have to be a registered pesticide, licensed pesticide um, applicator. And for that, you have to do continuing education every single year. Um, and so you're constantly going to, to meetings to find new information. Um, I'll say that clopyrifos is a frustrating tool because we know that it's dangerous when you use it incorrectly. So for us, we have to put on a respirator. We have to put on a lot of personal pr protective equipment to be able to use this insecticide. So of course, I would love to not have to do that. I would love something safer to come out. But that's, I mean, it kind of speaks to that we're still using it. It's not because we love the status quo. It's because we aren't there yet as far as finding an alternative. So we don't have another choice. And so when we go to these meetings and we hear the updates and we get new labels, um, that was part of in 2016 when the army worms started hitting, that was part of the insecticides that we started to try to use as trials on our farm. And uh, we used those because we had gone to meetings, because our field men had gone to meetings and they talked to those representatives and they said, let's give this a shot. Let's see if it'll work in this certain situation. So um, we're definitely working on it. And like, like you said, you know, it's the same with a lot of industries. You go and you get continuing education and you continue to find new, better ways to do more with less. So that kind of leads me to, to another concern I've had in this process is that we have people that uh, farm, that ranch, that do forestry work. And uh, it seems to me that the opponents to the people that do work with our natural and working lands continually push back that in some way you're degrading the earth, that in some way your harvest is unhealthy and it doesn't provide for another harvest next year, which is so counterintuitive, right? To you as a farmer, like you need next year's crop as much as you need this year's crop. You need mm -hmm. a crop 20 years from now as much as you need this year's crop. Like you need to continually be able to produce and harvest so yes. that you can sustain income. Like I can't even wrap my mind around the fact that people that don't do this work for a living believe that they know better than the people that are doing the work and that their concerns for the environment serve a greater purpose than mm -hmm. producing goods and feeding today's population. I think for me personally, as I, as I look at this fight that we just had over cap and trade, yeah. right? And, and so as you'll probably see with me, everything comes back to cap and trade. <laughs> uh, this bill, you know, ultimately drives up the cost of living. It drives up the cost of production. Uh, they they tried to say that ag and, and forestry was exempt. It's not that you're exempt. It's just that you weren't a regulated body yet. Exactly. And in the to the extent that they tried to consider you exempt, they said that well, red dye fuel wasn't going to get hit with, you know, this gas tax. Well, ultimately, I think 
we saw studies that showed it was between 25 and 33 percent for most farmers and mm -hmm. ranchers and agricultural producers, including forestry uh, endeavors that used red dye fuel versus the on-road fuel that they used to get their goods to market. They moved exactly. their people and their equipment around to the various fields that they worked. Mm -hmm. And so driving up the cost of production and driving up the cost of goods ultimately lands on the consumer. And we have to feed the 4.2 million people that live in Oregon. We have to clothe them. We have to provide goods and services to them. Uh, even when uh, we have, uh, you know, runs on uh, toilet paper and other things yeah. like that, we, we still need to produce more because yes. the people want to consume and, and we have to allow for that quality of life. And so all that said, you know, I guess my question still remains, you know, how, how do we deal with this? environment where people that don't actually perform the work want the greater say in how the work can be done and whether or not the work should be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, you know, it kind of goes back to, like I said earlier, you know, there's not a lot of farmers in, in Oregon. I mean, our, just population-wise, right? We're a really small number of population. And same with folks who live in rural areas. We're just a small percentage. But you know, we have a very different situation than folks who live in Portland and our challenges look different. And so I think just being able to be heard, you know, folks that come and show up. And I think that's been a big disconnect um, is that we just don't feel like we've been heard. And we've, we're constantly told that we hear you, we hear you and we're going to change things. But it doesn't they don't change it at all. You know, it's like someone's looking at you and just not listening and not truly hearing what you're saying. And so I think the changes need to look a lot different. And I think there's just a huge communication gap. And I think that's part of, you know, this, um, the blog that I wrote about the Clopyrifos, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just about Clopyrifos. It's about every time we come to the Capitol and we show up, you know, two to one, three to one for bills. And these are folks who are giving up income. I mean, it was a beautiful day when I came, um, you know, I got my neighbor and I said, we got to go, we got to go testify to this. And he did. And, you know, we took time out of our business, out of our day when we could have been fertilizing and we showed up to discuss this and then to just be like hounded with this letter that, you know, someone submitted without even verifying a registered lobbyist too. And so I think that we want to be heard and we want there to be some sort of accountability for what's being said against us also. And so I think that's, you know, just one important lesson because I think every farmer who walked out of that public hearing after every single panel got asked about the letter was just exhausted. Like, you're just not believing anything we're saying. So how much integrity do you think we have? And we know we have a lot, like we're putting our name on the line for this and we're trying to tell our truth and it's just not coming across. So to go back to your blog, because I, I really did find this rabbit hole investigation fascinating. <laughs> and, and it is a challenge for, again, from my side of things, because I have plenty of people that come into this office and as an elected official and trying to represent, you know, not just my district, but, you know, the best for, for the direction that Oregon should head, to see a letter that was submitted where you followed up with the, quote, 47 people that signed it turned out to be 45. Some were repeat. Uh, some misspelled their own name. So, you know, you really had some question as to the integrity of the document where ultimately you, I think, got to 39 verified. Yes signatures on the letter but even then the number of people that knew who wrote the letter and, and that I mean you were chasing 
who wrote the letter for a significant portion of your you know your 10-day journey to try and find the origins of the letter yeah How i didn't many... get anywhere i mean that yeah so that that was just from the get-go i think you know it's funny you brought up the signatures that was the first thing i did when i printed off the letter is i just quickly counted them my husband was sitting next to me and i started laughing i'm like there's only 45 which isn't significant but it just shows a lack of attention to detail and then you start looking through and i'm like oh there's some repeats there's this lady doesn't even exist oh but you know oh she spelled her name wrong or however it shook out and so when i got down to 39 folks it was like okay well let's start let's look into it and i honestly like i, I wrote in the blog that i really saw myself kind of looking for experts in the industry to catalog and look through all this huge list of insecticides that i was going to get my hands on within a couple of days i assumed and exactly i ended up 10 days down the road and i never got the list i finally got a hold of the gentleman who drafted the list or drafted excuse me the letter and he didn't even have access to this list and but that so, was i mean that was you were oh, yeah, told what <laughs> seven different people produced the letter you were told it was the mm -hmm. lobbyist jonathan manton you were told it was a professor at osu you were told it was the oregon league of conservation voters you were told it was environment oregon you were told it was beyond toxics you were told it was earth justice and these were from the folks that signed the letter that tried to steer you back to where they thought it was from ultimately to find out that no of those six, none of those people wrote the letter, and it was this group number seven, Friends of the Earth. Yes. And Friends of the Earth is who? They are a group out of Washington, D.C. I think they have a, a place in Washington, D.C. and maybe California somewhere. And I'm assuming that they're they're an NGO. They're um, an organization on the national level that I don't know exactly what they're trying to accomplish. I can make my assumptions of what they're trying to accomplish. Um, but they essentially wrote the letter and somehow dispersed it through Oregon. And um, I'm a, I mean, I'm assuming this letter probably exists in a lot of states where they're trying to ban this insecticide. Um, but they, you know, they specifically wrote it for Oregon, it looks like. And it was signed by Oregon professionals, university folks, academic scientists um, who did or did not have a link to pesticides um, as far as their field of study. I heard that time and time again. That's not really my field of study. That's not really why I wrote or why I signed the letter. And uh, one PhD went so far as to say, well, maybe maybe the list doesn't even exist. You know, maybe they just put that in there to beef up the letter. <laughs> and I thought, are you kidding me? But I think it, you know, everyone was very nice. They were very helpful. They tried to find me other things, but I was looking for this very specific list that was very specifically targeted at all the farmers in this hearing. That's what I wanted to find. The 98 alternative. The 98 alternative. And it was on this website, the Pesticide Research Institute website. Yes. Which ultimately... Um, it was another dead end. It was, <laughs> yeah. So I ended up getting a hold of, or I, I just went on the website and I saw that you need a subscription. I thought, oh, let's see where this takes me. And I clicked it. They're not giving out subscriptions. So I started calling the numbers on the website. One was disconnected. That was the office number. And then one went to what seemed like a cell phone voicemail. And I thought, what the heck, I'll leave a voicemail. And um, the lady called me back, I think a day later, and she said that she had bought a farm and it was taking up more of her time, which I had to laugh because yes, farming does take up a lot of time. And, uh, and that she was losing funding. She was at a point where she wasn't able to update the browsers anymore. Um, she hadn't even posted in I think almost two and a half or three years on the website. 
so it all just seemed very unfortunate um, because, you know, I think if she would have been able, like at each point where I hit a dead end, I just was, so, I thought I was so close to getting this stupid list. <laughs> and uh, so then <clears throat> she finally told me, you know, you could probably pay me and I would do it. And I thought, I'm not going to put money into this, you know? And so I said, no, I think I'm good, um, but I'll be in touch if I have any other questions. And so at that point, then when everyone continually kept steering me back to that, that website, I knew that there was a big problem and that this information, even if I found someone who happened to have a subscription to it, even if they went on and tried to get the list, how could we trust it when the person who owns the website is just telling me like, it's not been updated. This is not something that I have funding for. So I can't even verify what you'll find. And I come back full circle, right? To an honest uh, endeavor to try and find the 98 alternatives mm -hmm. to a product that you would love to have an alternative to. Yeah, absolutely. If it existed mm -hmm. and it truly worked mm -hmm. and was better for the environment, mm -hmm. allowed you to uh, dispose of the pests and produce a healthy crop, that was better for the land, you would love to find that alternative. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I don't know a farmer out there that wouldn't. I mean, that's that's where we're at. And it's an industry, industry-wide situation that we're in. And I wanna say this too, like there's no alternative that you know of that's like five times more expensive and you use this one because it's just more affordable. You use this one because it works. Yes, absolutely. Um, I did speak in my testimony or in my submitted testimony, I talked about one that um, there is a label for an insecticide that you can use um, in radish and it is labeled. But the problem with that is mother nature, right? So it is more expensive. It's like five times more expensive, which is a huge hit. Um, but the problem is, is that when you put it in the ground, it's so soluble that if you get one spring shower, it's gone. So you're sitting there and your crops in the ground and it starts to disappear because your insecticide is gone. So what do you do? You know, do you apply it again and again and again? And I don't even know if that's on label, but if it were on label, I really don't feel like applying an insecticide seven times through the year when I could have applied it or applied one insecticide at the start of the season is any better. Um, so, you know, that's the thing. It's there's so many um frustrating pieces to this of the roadblocks that you find when you look at alternatives. And clopyrifos is just one that we know how it works because there's so many studies that have been done. We know how the timing works. We know how mother nature works around this insecticide. And those are really important points to us to be able to be the most environmentally friendly that we can. And we also have a lot of federal studies that protect our employees um, when they're using this insecticide. Um, on our farm, our employees don't handle it. We handle it ourselves. And part of that is because we have to wear a respirator. We have to wear a lot of personal protective equipment and I don't like babysitting my employees. So if I want it done right, I'm gonna do it myself. And that's how we handle a lot of insecticides and a lot of pesticides on our farm. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just one of those frustrating situations where I think the challenges aren't as straightforward as reading a sheet of paper and saying, well, it says here that this works, and so you need to go out and use it. That's not how it works. So I wanna come now back to just this building and this process. 
So you have the benefit of doing something that a lot of other Oregonians don't get to do, right? So many people, especially from my district that are three hours away, don't get to come yeah. to the Capitol and testify. So here you are, you get to come to this building to engage in this process. And I can't even imagine the frustration to be presented with information that in this specific case truly didn't even exist. Mm -hmm. And yet were purported to be the defense for a position that ultimately was gonna force your business into engaging in a different practice. Mm -hmm. This letter carried weight with members of the majority party mm -hmm. that was driving their political agenda, yet the letter did not truly exist. I mean, it, the letter physically did exist, but the content mm -hmm. referenced uh, imaginary data, yeah. was signed by people that said that they didn't know where the letter came from, let alone couldn't speak to the validity or the content of the letter that that wasn't their subject matter expertise, yet they signed on, mm -hmm. and yet they were pointed to as scientists with PhDs, experts, mm -hmm. that signed on to this letter, 47 of them, Yes. that signed on to a letter that told you that there were 98 alternatives that were better than this product. When you're faced with that, like here you are, you got to engage in this process, you got to take mm -hmm. time off of your work, and I say you get to, I really do like I, I understand the cost but I also understand the benefit like you get to come have a voice yes, which I think is, is pretty valuable yes so as much as I do salute you for you know giving up your own you know opportunity to make income like you still get to engage and I think that's powerful so you were here and yet you were confronted with with like I don't have a better word for it a sham mm -hmm. like this was an absolute uh, scam of a process this was a outcome that was predetermined and they were gonna use any method to drive to that outcome. Like, how do you even put into words that experience? Like, I, I can't even imagine the frustration. Like, I, again, I, I know I sit on a different side of this table, right, where I do yeah. cast the vote and I have the people coming to provide testimony to me. I don't have the time to vet every last letter. I don't oh, have the 10 not. days yeah. <laughs> that you took to try and drill down to find out whether or not this was true. I have staff, but but we're faced with hundreds of bills. Like the opportunity for bad information to come through this building is scary to me. It is, absolutely. Well, and I think that's one of the reasons why this one stood out to me. I did go and listen to the floor debate um, when this bill was on the House side. And you know the discussion before they stopped answering questions, a lot of the discussion was around, um, you know, these alternatives that could kill all these pests or, you know, work with all these farmers and solve this problem. And so this feeling of that we were not doing our part as an industry was really heavy on my shoulders at that point. And then um, just, I kept hearing that they're just keeping the status quo. They're not doing the work. And that's really frustrating from a hardworking perspective. So then when I moved over to the house side and then they use this letter, the letter has a lot of information in it that I didn't even get a chance to look at because I was just like literally drilling down to this factual information that they continually hammered us on. The letter, I don't even know that he spoke to anything else in the letter except that piece. So for me, 
I just couldn't imagine that if you're going to be, for one, a registered lobbyist, and for two, a senator, I would just have hoped that if you're going to use that information to hammer panel after panel after panel with this information, that you would have looked 10 more seconds and just clicked on the website. Because I think, honestly, if I would have if I would have started at the website and I would have just clicked subscriptions, that one second where it said there are no more subscriptions available, it would have been a red flag. Like we right. actually, I think that was the point where I realized that this list probably doesn't exist. And that was a turning point for me because it changed kind of where I was going with this whole mission. It was like, now I just need to figure out, I just need to prove this negative, right? And so, I think if you're going to look at something like a slam dunk, you need to really look a little further. And I totally understand that there's a lot of information that comes in here, um, but I would just hope that moving forward, there's some pause before folks take something that they found. I don't even know where Jonathan Manson got the information, if it was sent to him or what, but I would just hope that you would pause and think, we don't even know who wrote this letter. Maybe we should actually look into it a little further and click on those references and just make sure before we just really go in guns drawn kind of feeling because that's how it felt yeah i mean to every single person who testified everyone said well we haven't seen the list because we all assumed it somewhere existed um so we can't speak to that i think it's funny too though we get accused as a minority party in this session specifically of of you know having employed delay tactics or being obstructionist you know, this day on the floor, I remember pretty vividly uh, the amount of questions that we tried to get on the record because they were still unclear. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of misdirection, uh, a la this letter, that were out there. Uh, information that we didn't believe was factual, and we tried to put these things on the letter. Um, one of the silly moments, but a good moment, was, you know, what insects are affected by chlorpyrifos and, and you know representative bossart davis read nine pages of insects yes <laughs> and uh you know i i understand where that might have been a little obnoxious but i think you know she was trying to prove a point like mm -hmm. this is something that is a wonderful answer it's a wonderful tool it does have drawbacks it does it, it's not the perfect solution but it's the best solution we have yes. for all these uh potential pests and in that process, one of our members made a motion out of order. They were gaveled down. Uh, Representative Bossart Davis, who clearly wanted to testify, who had been answering a lot of questions back and forth, had kind of orchestrated the day on, on our behalf as a caucus. You know, mm -hmm. she is a farmer, and we leaned on her pretty heavily for her expertise in this matter. And yet, when she tried to speak, mm -hmm. she was gaveled down as well yes. because she uh, tried to enter the queue too late. And so we had other moments during the session where we were told, oh, you know, you should suspend rules and allow us to make this correction because, you know, we would totally have suspended the rules for you. We would have totally accommodated your request. Mm -hmm. And I think that day was kind of the example for me that, no, that's not true. That the majority, uh, in this case, the super majority that had power was gonna control this building in every way, shape or form. And uh, and again, it was super frustrating to know the passion that Shelley had for this 
uh, excuse me, I get so informal sometimes, Representative Bossart Davis yes. <laughs> had for this issue, and yet she wasn't allowed her five minutes to speak because she simply didn't press the button in time and uh, could have easily been granted her five minutes and yes. would not have changed the outcome of the bill, but would have made her feel a lot better about having her voice. So um, you mentioned coming to the Senate hearing, you know, when you move from the House to the Senate, and having that public hearing. You mentioned that it was a two to one uh, ratio of folks that were opposed to the bill that, as to those who were proponents of the bill. Yes. Do you feel like at the end of that hearing that your voice was heard, that you had a fair opportunity to present your side? I think that when I've come to the Capitol before on other issues, I've, I have had those moments where I felt very heard and felt un understood. But this one in particular, and I think most of that was the weight of that letter and that factual information that just kept coming up time and time again. I, I don't feel like we were heard at all. I feel like they were just waiting for us to say that, that point of we don't have an alternative so that they could just slam this letter in our face again. And because it came up so many times, like every single panel almost was asked about this letter. So I just feel like we, you know, maybe we just didn't get a fair shake at it, to be honest. Or maybe the other folks who sat on that um, that committee would hear a different story or be able to actually listen to us if they weren't constantly thinking about this letter that contains information that is clearly not true. Well, again, I think of, of the role that I play in this process. Mm -hmm. If I were presented with that letter and I saw that there were 98 alternatives, I'm sure I would have called you immediately and said, hey, Brenda, like you had sent me a letter. Like I remember in my inbox, mm -hmm. I had a letter from you uh, expressing that there were no alternatives. And I probably would have called you and said, what the heck? There's this letter that they presented to me that shows 98 alternatives. Can you explain this? Right. Like let's let's work on this before we get to this point where we're just going to just like go on and on and on about it. Right. Yeah, exactly. The silver bullet of a letter that yeah, I wish I found a silver bullet in there. <laughs> I guess that's the best case scenario. We find something that works and everyone's happy and we all move on, right? But unfortunately, that was not the case. I guess all that said, you know, thank you so much for what you do. Uh, like, this process is better because people that have subject matter expertise that do this work outside of the building mm -hmm. come and testify and engage. Uh, I can't thank you enough. I, I look to, you know, the grassroots movements that we've seen around the state to try and help restore balance in the future. And I'm hopeful that this process uh, does get better and that we get back to a level of transparency with voters and accountability mm -hmm. uh, within this organization to produce uh, the best legislation and not just simply a political party's agenda. Yeah, so. I agree. <laughs> Thank you for taking the time this morning. It is a beautiful day, so we're going to let you go and get back out Perfect. and do your work. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And thank you, the listeners, for coming back by again. Main Street Politics, remember, if you need to get a hold of us, here in the office, 503-986-1459, or our district office is 541-719-8745.